On this episode of the Brain Tech Podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Brandon Foreman, Professor of Neurology and Neurointensive Care Specialist. We take a peek into what this profession is like and discuss the nature of brain injury. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Brandon. Welcome. It's great to have you on. Hey, Zach. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Sure. So I guess we'll start off with a little bit of context about you. So would you mind talking about where you currently work and what your positions are? Sure. Uh, So I'm currently an associate professor of neurology and rehabilitation medicine at the University of Cincinnati here in Cincinnati, Ohio. Great. Um, And then, so what was the, I guess, like education process to get to where you are today? And like what kind of um, degrees were required? What sort of training was involved? Like how did that process work? Yeah. um, So it's kind of a long road to get here. I am currently a neurologist, but I also practice the intensive care unit. And so I ended up getting some specialty training to be able to do that. So my journey kind of started back in undergrad and I got a bachelor of science and uh, in biology with a minor in psychology. And that took you know three and a half years or so. And then subsequently went to medical school for four years. And once you're done with medical school, usually there's a process of training called residency where you you know, specialize in whatever you're interested in. And so in my case, it was neurology. And that was four years, an internship in medicine and three years of neurology-specific training. And then because I had an interest in intensive care, neurology, and monitoring the brain using EEG, I actually did a year of EEG training followed by the standard two years of neurocritical care training. So in total, seven years of post-medical school training uh, before... Uh, starting my current position. And in the academic world, you actually start as an assistant professor or even a clinical instructor and then kind of move up the ranks. And so after about five years of being an assistant professor, I moved up to associate professor uh, a year and a half ago or so. And so that's where I'm at now. So in total, I think it was what, 11 years of training after uh, after college. Wow. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot. It's many years. So what is your, like, I don't know if there is a typical week, but I guess if you could sort of give a preview of like a peek into the life of like uh, talk about sort of maybe like what a week looks like, or maybe it's different between weeks. If you're doing research or with patients, could you describe like sort of give a peek into the life of a, of a neurologist? Sure. Uh, so every, everyone's a little bit different in how they structure their world. Uh, and one of the reasons I did what I did, which was, you know, academic neurointensive care, kind of the sub sub specialty is I, well, I'm an adrenaline junkie with ADD. And so uh, I like to be able to do multiple different things from teaching to research and data science to uh, clinical care. So my weeks end up being pretty different depending on what's going on. Clinically, when I work, it's usually a week on and week off. And that's pretty standard for in-hospital-based practices of neurology, such as hospitalists or intensive care uh, practitioners. And so during my week on, I'm on from Monday to Sunday, and essentially I've got a cadre of patients within my ICU. And in a typical day, I show up to round, meaning I'm kind of taking control of the ship, so to speak. And we've got several different team members from advanced practice practitioners to residents, uh, to fellows who are the people post-residency getting additional training in intensive care. And even med students or observers who are undergrads kind of looking to get into medicine or neurology. So we've got this whole team of folks. And so I usually arrive at 8.30 or so and 
we take the team around and we see each individual patient go over all of their different issues, what's going on that day, that moment that needs to be addressed, come up with a plan alongside the bedside nurses taking care of that patient uh, and do that for the entire unit. And that process takes a couple of hours. And then once that's done, the team kind of disperses, gets a lot of the work done. So connecting with families, making sure they know what the plan is, connecting with other providers uh, who might need to join in the care team. So uh, for instance, maybe a cardiologist who needs to address a very specific heart problem. And then at the end of the day, usually by you know three or four in the afternoon, we loop back around and say, okay, what changed? What all has been done? What all do we need to address now going into the night? Um, and then for the rest of the evening, it's taking calls. So getting a call from another hospital saying we've got something that we need you guys to help out with because you have neurosurgeons who you work with or you have other specialties that you work with. So that's kind of a clinical week. It's pretty unique to intensive care medicine. A lot of neurologists actually do more outpatient medicine. And that job looks more like working in a clinical space, you know, an outpatient clinic. So patients come to you, you see them throughout the morning, uh, throughout the afternoon, or maybe you have a job where you round in the hospital and then move on to a clinic for the afternoon. Uh, my non-clinical weeks are totally variable. Um, and by that, I mean, I do a lot of research. So about 80% of my time is spent doing research stuff. And what that means is coordinating different studies, working with people who are actively doing research to kind of guide what the question is they're answering, how they're addressing it, enrolling patients. So going and finding a patient who may qualify for a study, consenting them for the study or doing the study procedures. Uh, for instance, I'm doing a, a physical exam as part of a study to assess where a spinal cord injury occurred in a patient who's involved in a, a clinical trial uh, later this week. And a lot of it's been at the computer, actually doing, in my case, the statistics and data analysis for some things, writing in some cases, writing papers, describing what we're doing, describing what we're finding, um, and then, of course, teaching. So doing lectures, uh, talks for different entities, whether it's the university or uh, the medical school, and uh, you know, interacting with people across their training background, from med students to residents to other physicians in the community. So just kind of totally random during the week that I'm not doing things clinically. And that's by design. Um, I always kind of like that idea of being flexible to say, you know what, this morning, I really want to focus in on this particular aspect of this project. Or, you know, right now, I really want to focus on writing and, and kind of doing that that narrative piece, that creative piece that comes along with academics. Oh, it's really interesting. And especially when you're talking about the, uh, the clinical side of it, how you work with a whole team. And is that to get um, people who are experts in different areas of uh, physiology and bring like all the different expert opinions together to try to manage the patient in their correct way? In part, yeah. A lot of it's actually just getting the work done. It takes a team of folks, you know, someone to go in and do the procedure, someone else to make sure the orders are in correctly, someone else to follow up with the, you know, the bedside nurse to make sure everything is, uh, you know, working the way they expect it to, make sure the patient's responding the way we expect it to, um, when we make a, a plan for that person. And then on top of that, it's kind of bringing in, so there's kind of the direct team that's taking care of the patient, and then it is bringing in sort of those multiple components, something we call multidisciplinary rounds or multidisciplinary medicine, which is becoming okay. something that's pretty indispensable. It's kind of hard to command all of medicine, you know, even though as intensivists and, you know, my, my internist colleagues, we, we kind of have a general command of things. But, you know, when it comes to some things like, 
you know, specific medications for things like cancers or for cardiology. Some of those things really take years and years of additional training that, you know, we rely on those folks' expertise to help help us to, uh, to coordinate for a specific patient. Right. That makes sense. And then what are some of the uh, current things you're researching? A lot of what I'm interested in is how the brain kind of responds to an injury and how it acts in an abnormal or normal way after an injury so we can help navigate essentially how that brain recovers. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you were to think of just any injury, let's say you stub your toe, right? you got a period of time where it hurts like crazy and then it sort of becomes painful, maybe even numb for a little bit of time. Then you can kind of feel it pulsing. It feels awful. It becomes red. It becomes swollen. And then over the next couple of days, maybe you have a bruise that develops before it finally goes away, right? And what do you do during all that? Well, you might put it on ice and then you might take some Advil and then you might try to stay off of it a little bit to give it some time to recuperate. Well, all of that stuff is what we have to do when the brain gets injured. The problem is the brain is such a specialty organ. It's so complex in its functioning that when it gets injured, some of those functions may not work fully, um, as in you may not be awake or conscious. Those, those are folks who need a help with you know things like breathing potentially and end up in our ICU and uh, in a state sometimes called coma uh, or, or some other alteration in, in their ability to be awake. And we have to kind of you know rely on other things besides looking at a, a red swollen joint, right? We can't do that with the brain. And so we have to rely on these other measures of how is the brain functioning or not functioning to help navigate it through as best we can. So on the other side, it returns to sort of being a fully functioning normal brain as much as we can get it to do so. Uh, and so a lot of the research that uh, I'm interested in, a lot of the stuff that we do is kind of based on those first couple of days. The brain gets injured. Now what happens? How do we detect stuff that's going on? We can hopefully help treat or mitigate. And how can we get it to the other side with the least amount of additional or, or kind of collateral damage possible? Okay. Uh, so there's a, there's a whole lot to unpack here. So I guess we'll start with... Um... Like, what are some of the technologies or the methodologies that you employ when you're actually trying to um, like get a metric of the brain injury? So maybe how, how do you quantify the brain injury or what are you looking at in the brain to determine, I guess, like the extent or severity of the injury? The most important thing is how the patient's doing, ultimately. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, think about sort of in the popular literature, right, the concussions. You can think about someone who's hit their head and you'll read about what a concussion is maybe, where they lose consciousness for a few seconds and then come back to and they're sort of dizzy or foggy. That tells you a little bit about that brain injury, right? It wasn't a totally benign thing. That brain got bruised. And then there's a whole spectrum wherein the brain might get injured in a way, like say with a stroke, where just a single part of it gets damaged. And you can examine a patient and see that that damaged part of the brain results in maybe weakness on one side or the other. Uh, and so um, we rely a lot on the clinical exam to tell us how the brain is functioning. The other things that we'll often do is once someone comes into the hospital, say, and their brain's not functioning right, maybe a part of their body's not in their control, maybe their ability for their brain to create wakefulness is disrupted. Uh, then we rely on other stuff because we want to get a better picture of what the brain looks like and what it's doing. And so uh, imaging ends up being sort of our next step. So we examine a patient, and then we rely on things like CAT scans or MRIs to tell us, well, is there anything structurally that's damaged or, or you know, made the brain look abnormal, presuming that that's also going to affect its function. 
And then we can also use other things when, especially when the examination is impaired, where we have a patient whose brain is not acting normally, but maybe we're not sure if it's something structurally, something about the way it looks, or maybe it's something just functionally about the way it's behaving or acting. And that's when we can use electrophysiology, things like EEG, where we're recording the voltage changes that occur uh, across the brain. And these things are, are uh, essentially pattern recognition where you can look and see what the voltage changes are across the brain. And we know what normal looks like because normal brain does things in a very kind of systematic way. And we know what abnormal looks like. And we can pick up on things as the brain gets injured that tell us it's acting in a specific way. Maybe it's seizures or maybe it's some other abnormal pattern that tells us that brain is really irritated in one spot or another. And that helps us kind of monitor not just how the brain's looking, but also how it's functioning over time. Okay. So sort of the process you take is to assess the patient first and then go and look at, use scans to look at the structure of the brain and then techniques like EEG to look at the functionality of the brain. So is that like a typical pathway? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a, a good way to put, you know, the diagnostics in a lot of medicine, honestly. Okay. And then how variable is brain injury, like between patients or between the way in which the brain is injured, like between maybe like a fall or um, some other way that the brain is injured, maybe like from a car accident, like how variable is that? Super, super variable. Yeah, super variable. Well, it depends on what's causing the injury. Things like stroke can be variable based on where a blood clot forms and causes blood flow to stop to a certain part of the brain. And the variability there is, well, what blood vessel got blocked up? And then based on what blood vessel is blocked and what area of the brain was affected, then you can start to see injuries that look fairly characteristic or fairly similar. For instance, if you were to block the blood vessel going to the left side of the brain that controls your motor pathways, then the right side of your body is going to be weak or unable to move. And that injury tends to be a little bit more consistent. Every time you block that blood vessel, for most patients, you end up with a very similar sort of characteristic look or exam. In other injuries, such as traumatic brain injury, where the brain is sort of violently jostled, shaken, bumped, banged around, then the injury becomes a lot more difficult to assess. It's very heterogeneous how that injury is going to appear, because in some cases you might have a brain bruise, a specific location where the brain gets injured. But in many cases, the brain's been shaken to the point where its axons or its radiations, those long projections that come from the brain to help control the rest of the body, get torn or sheared in different ways, depending on the rotational forces, all these other things that go into the injury itself. And that becomes a challenge with traumatic brain injury. It's very distinct from injuries like stroke, which are vascular injuries, essentially. And so the 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 kind of progression of what that looks like because it's so heterogeneous at the time of injury, the progression of how that injury evolves over time becomes really difficult and very patient specific in many ways. Right. And then, so by extension, is the recovery from a traumatic brain injury or brain injury, um, is that variable between patients as well? That's super variable too. Um, And even variable within, you know, a, a pretty consistent presentation. So again, we're kind of going back to the stroke example. If you have Two people with the exact same size and location of stroke, very similar symptoms at onset. There's a lot of stuff that goes between the injury and the recovery of the brain that impacts how that person's going to do. And that's everything from, you know, whether the patient's got what sometimes we'll call good substrate. In other words, they're healthy otherwise and their body's able to compensate and their brain's able to sort of compensate for that injury. 
or not. And maybe it's someone who's got a lot of comorbidities and the brain already has damage from other problems. Maybe they had strokes in the past uh, or they've got heart issues that kind of prevents them from recovering as well. Then that recovery ends up being really variable. Even things, you know, more and more we're recognizing even things like your social support impact your outcome. So do you have a, you know, a huge family that's able to kind of help you up and push you to start walking again? Or are you someone who's not able to do that, doesn't have that kind of support network? When it comes to traumatic brain injury, of course, because the injury is so heterogeneous, the recovery is even more difficult to predict. And this has been a huge source of uh, research, particularly in, in the past 10 or 15 years. And there have been a number of huge efforts to try to just gather patients together, try to get a handle on what those factors might be that impact outcome, and then get a better sense for how to predict if you have a specific injury and you have maybe a specific sort of background health and you have a specific set of, of things that happen after you get injured. For instance, you've needed help with your lungs or you've needed help with your heart or you've gotten to rehab uh, in a specialty place versus a non-specialty place. All of these things, if you put them together, can we better predict who's going to recover and how? Because it really is all those millions of pieces that go together into someone to, to kind of mediate someone's recovery. Right. So it's really taking all of these different modalities that are being monitored on the patient, as well as looking at how the injury occurred and how they're recovering. And is it bringing all these together to try to predict, I guess, for both that patient, how they'll um, recover, as well as using that to look at future patients and seeing if their conditions are similar and seeing if they'll progress in a similar way. Right. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. Um, so I guess... Like I'm trying to think of like where monitoring fits. So is that sort of bridging the gap between like arrival at a hospital due to an injury and then recovery? So like in that time within the hospital, that's where monitoring of the patient occurs? Yeah, a lot of what you know I end up doing is sort of taking this period where we've got a known injury that's already happened and we've got a recovery period where the patient's going to hopefully recover kind of in the best possible way they can with the best recovery they can, the best support they can. And in the interim, things happen. The brain ends up developing a, a lot of strange kind of things that happen to it to, you know, in, in endogenously recover. But in doing so, sometimes there's these secondary injuries that happen. So by extension, right, we talked about the, the stubbing toe example, right? So you stub your toe and then you have this big inflammation that happens. And that inflammation is designed to clear out any bruising, any blood that's leaked out of the damaged blood vessels to repair the damage to the bone, for instance, where you stub your toe. So all of that process, which occurs over the period of right a week, two weeks, happens inside the brain as well. But the problem is because the brain is so complex, a lot of these pathways lead to collateral damage and in ways that sometimes are hard to predict. Those are something we call secondary brain injuries. And a lot of what we deal with in the IC is trying to prevent those. And in some cases, they come from the brain itself, just evolve as that injury evolves. In other cases, it comes from maybe other injuries. Let's say you're in a bad automobile accident and you've also got bruises in your lungs or maybe damage to the heart and it prevents you from having adequate blood flow or adequate oxygen delivery to the brain. And so a lot of our job is just trying to uh, basically give the brain the best possible chance it can to recover by mitigating a lot of those secondary brain injury pathways, the secondary brain injuries that can occur in the week to two weeks following injury. So a lot of our monitoring is directed at that, 
Okay, is the brain getting what it needs? It's you know it's sort of like when you have a cold and you have to you know make sure you drink fluids and eat chicken soup and get your calories, but also rest. Right? We want your body to heal, so you give it everything it needs, and then you give it time while it has everything it needs to try to heal. And so that's what we're doing to the brain. It's making sure the brain has everything it needs, so that whatever pathways it's going through to heal on its own, it can do so in the best possible way. Oh, gotcha. And like, what are the needs of the brain? Like when you're keeping a patient stable? Yeah, it's a, you know, a lot of the brain is ignited based on just oxygen and glucose and the chemical reactions that occur with those two molecules. So the brain's totally fed by oxygen and glucose. The the task of the body is to get oxygen and glucose to the brain because the body's metabolic rate in general, about 20% of it is actually taken up by the brain. So even though the brain is like 5% of your body's mass, 20% of your overall metabolic rate. So all of that glucose and oxygen that the brain needs has to be delivered. It's delivered through the cardiovascular system, the lungs and the heart. And so what we tend to do is focus on making sure that the brain has enough of those two things by virtue of having enough blood pressure, by virtue of having enough uh, oxygen delivery through the lungs, and by making sure that in areas of the brain that are functioning, that they continue to function because we can presume that they that it has enough of that substrate. In areas of the brain where maybe it's not functioning, like an area that's bruised or an area that seems to have a, a lack of blood flow, sometimes we'll monitor the tissue directly. And you do that through putting in some small catheters that actually get placed directly under the skull into the brain tissue itself that measure things like oxygen, uh, glucose, blood flow, and that way we get a little bit more refined look at, you know, that brain tissue that may not be functioning to where I can examine a patient, see how it's working, but I can at least see, well, is it getting enough of what it needs, even if it's stunned and not working or damaged right now and needs to recover. Okay. Um, and so like, what's the brain's actual response when it suffers a traumatic brain injury? Like, are there physiological changes that occur within the brain as a means to try to um, mitigate the injury or to try and recover? Yeah, it's a, a really complex cascade of things. Um, and in part, it's related to where kind of, or, or I should say what the nature of the injury is. But um, for, you know, I think in general, for most brain tissue, it, it does a couple of things. So the first thing it does is it stops working temporarily. So there's kind of an initial stunned period where uh, a lot of times the brain tissue is depolarized. So it's lost its resting membrane potential. And it requires a lot of energy to, to re-engage that resting membrane potential to recharge the cortex itself. And then once that's done, you know, if it's done, then the cortex can start to operate, but it may not be able to generate the normal action potentials it normally generates, or it might not be connected to the normal areas of the brain that has to be connected to, to work. The brain is largely network-based, right? And so that area of cortex or that area of brain that's been damaged may not be functioning in the sense that it's normally able to function. But in that sense, you know, we're able to monitor at least if it's getting enough of what it needs. Now, usually what ends up happening in the following kind of steps are there's a lot of debris. There's a lot of stuff that's been kind of pushed out of the cell or injected into the cell. It's not supposed to be there, whether it's ions like sodium or calcium or whether it's just chunks of stuff that got damaged, you know, such as cell wall components or cell membrane components or blood components. Um, and so then the body's got to get rid of that. And so that's where the inflammatory cascades start coming into play and say so the brain gets injured. It, you know, has to recover from that initial injury, and then you start getting all the inflammatory stuff that happens. So blood vessels expand, increasing blood volume to try to get inflammatory cells there. There's a bunch of inflammatory hormones that get, or cytokines that get released. 
And while these are supposed to help clear debris, you know, kind of enhance the brain's recovery by trying to clear out stuff that's not supposed to be there, they also tend to damage things in the process because they also say, well, that cell looks like it's damaged, so get rid of it. And, you know, we'll kill the cell or another cell will have too much debris in it and so it will spontaneously die. And you end up with these neurons that uh, begin dying in the secondary brain injury cascade as a result. Once all of that stuff is done, then you start getting into the remodeling phase where neurons start to go, okay, well, I'm still alive. I need to connect to my network. And they start to have, you know, uh, connections that develop to other areas of the brain. And those can be normal, ideally, um, but sometimes they can also be abnormal. And sometimes we'll see areas of brain where they're abnormally connected and fire abnormally, causing, well, what you clinically refer to as a seizure. And so epilepsy can develop, for instance, as that, uh, injury continues to progress. And so it's this sort of evolving cascade of stuff that happens as the brain tries to go through its repair process. And again, it usually is over a week to two weeks in the acute period, but we see that remodeling process and those reconnections occur over months and even years uh, after brain injury, which is really cool. The brain takes a long time. It's very much a long, a long game in terms of its time course to heal. That remodeling is actually really interesting. So obviously the brain is neuroplastic, so after it suffers this injury, it's trying to, like you said, like remake all the connections, whether it was the connections it made before or if it's an abnormal connection. So is it through like therapy or like, like physical therapy or um, some sort of training that like retrains those connections to go from abnormal to proper connections? Or is it just with enough time, the uh, proper connections reestablish themselves? Uh, well, it depends. So there's there's some cases where the connections get made because those are the paths that those neurons take or they reconnect through existing pathways that maybe weren't damaged. And that's sort of ideal for spontaneous recovery. But there is some evidence that doing things like physical therapy, uh, things that do kind of retrain your brain can either enhance or create alternative networks and pathways that allow that recovery to occur. And that's a big part of the rehabilitation medicine piece of neurology that's so important is learning how to augment, improve, uh, or strengthen those those recovery pathways through things like physical therapy, um, through things like, you know, uh, there's a variety of different ways to do this, but through things like uh, video game training, for instance, training the brain to recognize that if I do this, it's going to cause this action to happen. Uh, mirror therapy, where you trick your brain into saying, well, if I do this, then this part of my body moves, even though it's in a mirror. You know, these, these sorts of things that kind of trick the brain into going, oh, I need to activate over here. Um, you know, and, and so there's this really kind of growing sophistication to physical therapy that I think is enhancing the plasticity in ways that, you know, previously were sort of unknown. And it's really, really cool. There's medications, too, that can help. I think a lot less is known about how they affect plasticity and in some cases. You know, we've tested medications and they might fix an early problem or they might fix a developing problem in the early phases, but then maybe decrease plasticity or recovery down the line. And so a lot of that stuff is under investigation as well to try to better understand how can we improve that, you know, latent ability for the brain to heal and to be plastic and to recover those connections and that function ultimately that we want it to recover. Oh, that's very interesting. That's a that's an interesting approach, um, like with these with these therapies to try and retrain like the neural circuits that had been damaged during a brain injury. I think that's a very like interesting, interesting approach. And it's it, it makes cool a lot of field. sense. It's a really, really cool field. Uh, and the things that they can do really to improve people's well-being 
uh, you know, even from the practical standpoint of, of developing tricks to leverage an injured limb that may be spastic or has increased tone, but then to compensate for that physically uh, is just so life-changing for a lot of these patients. That is. And then does the brain ever fully recover from a traumatic brain injury or will it always be changed after an injury? To some degree, it's always changed. But the things that make that patient that patient or that person that person um, do recover and to a surprising degree, not for everybody, obviously, but, you know, there's been a growing literature that's really shown us that the brain can recover much more than we give it credit for. Uh, so in one example, for instance, patients who have disorders of consciousness or coma that progresses to what used to be called a vegetative state, you know, in the past, this was thought to be sort of the brain is injured, it's not coming back, it's not recovering. And what's been found is, you know, a huge proportion of these patients given enough time, a year or even more, actually recover consciousness. I mean, that's sort of the basic construct of what makes us human, right, is our ability to be consciously aware. Uh, and similarly, when you look at recovery of other things like motor function, um, or cognitive function, although, you know, after traumatic brain injury, for instance, more than 50% of people do have persistent cognitive de deficits up to even three or five years after their injury, they do tend to recover even that far out, slowly but surely. And a lot of times there are these subtle changes that maybe the patient's aware of that we don't test super well in our own testing. You know, someone may be cognitively normal, but they still just don't feel quite themselves or their family members might report they don't quite feel themselves. And that spectrum of recovery is something we don't measure as well, but certainly there is some degree of that injury that sticks around. The brain never or often doesn't 100% heal from particularly severe injuries. Um, but, you know, can you retain those aspects of who you are, retain that function that you need to get around and navigate the world? That's something I think we're, we're optimistic about in many cases. Okay. Yeah, it's good that the things that make us individuals and very like human, that those are the things that come back after a traumatic brain injury. Like, that's yeah, very important. That's, it is hugely important. That's sort of the philosophical aspect of what we do, particularly in our ICU, where that tends to be the function that's often impaired to get them to the ICU. Hmm. Um, getting that back sort of conceptually is, is really an area of, of big interest. And coma science has become a, a really important feature of what we do in the neurocritical care space, uh, particularly. Right. Um, can we briefly talk a bit about coma? Sure. So I guess like the basic question is like, like, what is a coma? Like when a patient is in a coma, I guess, how do you know? Yeah, that's a really good question. And one that like for years has not had a great answer. <laughs> uh, but, you know, coma is sort of described clinically. It's, it's in other words, a phenomenon that you can see and observe. And it's defined really as, as someone who is unable to interact with their environment, even given as much stimulation as you possibly can. And often that's what we do to test people is we stimulate them as much as we can and try to get them to do something, whether it's opening their eyes, looking around the room, anything to tell us that they're able to interact with their environment. If they can't, that's defined as coma. Um, it's it's a, sometimes described as a profound state of, of unarousal or inability to arouse. And it's not a permanent state. The brain never stays in a coma. Eventually, it always recovers some degree of sleep-wake cycling, for instance, where the eyes might open. But again, there's no interaction with the environment, even in that prolonged, what is sometimes termed a vegetative state or a prolonged state of unresponsive wakefulness. Um, and that's sort of the, the lowest level of functioning that you can have after a severe brain injury, where that's, re that's really brain failure. 
that's when the brain no longer does what it's supposed to do, which is make you awake and consciously aware. And much of what we deal with in the acute setting is going, okay, well, this patient is in coma. How do we allow them the opportunity for that brain to recover such that at least that is moved through and, and the patient's able to have some level of arousal or wakefulness? Okay. So when a patient's in a coma, they have no conscious experience while they're in that coma? Presumably not. Um, there is some evidence that if you do certain tests that are very, very sensitive for things like uh, uh, hearing something. So if you were to, for instance, put an earplug in someone's ear and make specific clicks and every now and then a click is very different and then it goes back to having the clicks, you can actually measure the brain's response to that. The brain actually responds in, in a way that tells you that it's hearing that, for lack of a better term. But the conscious awareness or conscious experience of hearing that may still be impaired. Now, there's been literature over the last 10 or 15 years that is slowly coming around to the idea that there's there are some patients who have what's called cognitive motor dissociation. In other words, they're unable to experience their environment or interact with their environment in a way that we can see clinically. But if you were to put them in a MRI scanner or do a, 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 a highly kind of um, quantitative EEG and ask them to cognitively do something such as walk around a room in their house, imagine walking around a room in their house, or imagine playing tennis, doing something that they have to conceptualize cognitively without moving, that about 15% of those patients who appear to be in coma are not only able to hear the command, but cognitively conceptualize what we're asking them to conceptualize. Uh, and so that's kind of an interesting phenomenon where some people may appear to be in a coma, but they still have conscious uh, awareness that we're not able to fully appreciate in our clinical exam. Oh, that's very interesting. And so when a patient is in a coma, is the standard of care to just um, maintain that state um, and let the brain um, come out of coma on its own given enough time? Or is there um, active efforts to try and lift a patient out of coma? We don't have anything that's great at lifting a patient out of coma. And I think that's the sort of promise that we want to get to eventually, that there's something that will enhance that recovery of those pathways required to be awake and aware. Um, but right now, there's not anything other than support and time and addressing ultimately the underlying problem. And it may be that coma is resulting from too much of a medication that's in your system, uh, or it may be that coma results from too much pressure being in your ventricles, the plumbing system of the brain, maybe overfilled, pressurizing the brain, creating this problem. And so as long as we address the initial problem, uh, then, you know, it's support and time often to get someone out of that coma. In people who've got persistent, what we call disorders of consciousness, often they've passed through the stage of coma, but they're still unable to interact with their environment. There's at least one medication that's got a randomized controlled trial level of evidence that suggests it may enhance recovery or the ability to participate in physical therapy and recovery efforts. Uh, but beyond that, we don't have too much. It's really addressing the underlying problem and giving time and support uh, through you know all of all of that stuff we've been talking about in terms of monitoring the brain and mitigating secondary brain injury, that uh, that ends up being the focus of, of you know that effort to try to wake someone up or have someone wake up on their own. Okay, got it. Thank you. So I just have a few more things to um, wrap things up. So if you could, I guess, like will a technology into existence that would help you you know better manage patients or to um, better understand the brain. So some sort of magic technology you could just poof and it'd be there to help you. Do you have any sort of idea of like what that technology would be? 
Yeah, uh, you know, I think something that is non-invasive, in other words, doesn't require to do surgery or stick someone something in someone's brain, someone non-invasive, that something non-invasive that you could apply to tell you something about how the brain is functioning or not functioning and its level of health, so to speak. Is that brain tissue, in other words, healthy enough to survive and recover? Is that network of brain tissue, for instance, healthy enough to survive and recover? Um, and if it's not, is there something we can intervene on? Would be immensely helpful. So a non-invasive technology that says, in real time, here's what's going on with the brain tissue that you're monitoring. Would it be a huge boon to help me anyway in kind of navigating this world of secondary brain injury and all these other things that happen in the critical care unit. Um, and then I think a corollary to that is some non-invasive, you know, non-invasive is the key, right? Because you never want to jack with the brain by sticking something in it, ideally. Um, but some sort of non-invasive technology that that allows you to sort of enhance the rewiring or the network connectivity of the brain, sort of allowing the brain to to uh, recover its complexity would be the other thing on the kind of on the other end of getting them through that first week or two is stimulating that network complexity that makes the brain do what it's supposed to do, which is, you know, be consciously aware and control and controlling your, your body and interactions with your environment. Oh, that's very interesting. So we got quantifying how healthy the brain tissue is. Then we have trying to get the brain to rewire itself. Essentially, yeah. Or reorganize itself maybe more accurately. Okay. Do you have a favorite part of the brain or a favorite brain structure or favorite brain function or one that you find is like the most fascinating to you? Yeah. I uh, What I actually find the most fascinating uh, is the emergent properties of the brain itself. So it's not a specific structure. It's sort of the network of connected pieces that then interact in a way that's synchronous or interact in a way that's sort of joined together in the complexity of multiple different moving parts. That part of the brain is super, super cool. So how these, how all these connections in the brain can give rise to something that's much greater than just like the connections or the brain itself. Right. Exactly. Okay. So then um, last thing, if you could give any advice to uh, students aspiring to be a neurologist or um, students that maybe just have the interest in the brain more generally, um, like what, what advice would you share maybe for how you have come to grasp the complex tissue that's, is the brain or, um, how you've learned things or, um, progressed to where you are today? Well, I think it kind of depends on the interest. Neuroscience is huge. Like it's a giant field. And so while there's amazing things happening in, in cognitive neuroscience, for instance, that deal with complexity in data science, but also deal with electrophysiology, neurophysiology. There's fantastic stuff going on in the realm of clinical neurology too, uh, in both therapeutics and in rehabilitation, and even the acute care part where, that we do, the field's rapidly evolving as well. And the nexus of that, to me, a lot of it's neurocritical care because we end up monitoring and having so much of this data. And so we have to kind of span these worlds to some degree. Psychiatry's done a great job of that as well. They do fantastic stuff with looking at the brain from a neuroscientific and cognitive neuroscience perspective and merging that with their clinical care. So, you know, I think the key thing is to find somebody that you can hook on to and see what they do, see what kinds of things they do in their everyday practice, see what kinds of things that they do in their everyday job, 
what they're studying or how they're measuring what they're studying or how they're treating what they're examining. And in doing so, you kind of figure out, you know, I really like this aspect. I really like this aspect. Find the thing that tickles not just your sort of like intellectual interest, you know, but also sort of that deeper philosophical interest. Find the thing that makes you go, I need to know more about this, that, or the other, because that's what neuroscience is all about. It's discovering these things that in 20 years we're going to go, oh, yeah, that's common knowledge. And uh, it's a wide open field for that kind of thing. All right. Well, thank you, Brandon. Um, this really was an excellent conversation. And I thought so many of the things you said were fascinating. And you know, I certainly enjoyed it. I hope that this was illuminating and interesting to some of the listeners as well. So thank you, Brandon. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. It's great to talk to you.